welcome. This is uh, the Unicorn Farm. I can't remember what episode we're on, but it's uh, Ian Gardner here. Uh, and I'm here with uh, Australia's next billion dollar startup. Uh, I have Luke Anir from Safety Culture. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Um, uh, the background noise, if you're wondering, is the we're in the middle of the AWS Sydney Summit in the, the conference hall. And, in, and actually, a slightly dodgy red red booth. Is your eyesight coping, Luke? It's, I'm managing fine. It is reminding me of, of Amsterdam, though, that, uh, <laughs> the, the, the red booth, but it, we'll get through it. Yeah, good. Uh, so you, you were uh, you gave a, a speech this morning, so uh, at the keynote, how, how did that go? Uh, I think it went well. Uh, the feedback's been good, but yeah, I, I told the story on uh, the sort of garage to global story of safety culture and how we uh, you know, started out with an idea to solve a, a problem, specifically workplace health and safety, and um, we built an app and, and have been trying to keep up with okay. it ever since. Okay, well, well, without going into the entire... How long did you get? It was about 15 minutes, wasn't it, this morning? It was a little late? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, about yeah, 12 minutes. Okay, so without your 12-minute uh, pitch, just can you tell us a little bit about safety culture, what it does, and how you got started? Uh, so safety culture um, started with a, a mobile app for building checklists and inspection forms. We wanted to uh, fix what we thought was broken with safety, and that is that people on the front line who have to actually use the safety systems um, were never involved in the creation of them, and that was pushed down from management. So we created a, a bottom-up approach where people could build a workflow without having an IT department involved or getting procurement approval. We, we released a free app that allowed people to download it, use it, and, uh, and build out their own sort of use cases, which, which then went up the chain to management. Yeah. And uh, it's gone pretty well. So can you but, give us an idea about the traction and user growth since? Yeah, so it's about half a million people, 480,000 uh, people using it. and. Um, uh, so it's 480,000, how many organisations does that represent? About 10,500 uh, organisations, so, so customers who, who pay. So it's um, about 50 users on average per organisation. Yeah, well, there'd be people who, who use it more often than others right. and that sort of thing, so the numbers would, would um, average out to be less than that. But um, essentially, uh, you, we focused on building the, the product for really two, two years or so, two and a half years, and we had a cloud beta um, product, and we've only just now released that, that cloud service out of beta, and, uh, and so we're actually going after revenue and growth now um, in terms of, of users. Okay, and so how long ago did you start? February 2012 we released the app, so three years ago, a bit over three years now, and um, all we did was put it to the app store. Uh, about a year later we released the Android version to follow the, the iOS version, and um, we built a cloud version um, about 15 months after the launch. And so piece by piece, we've been sort of just catching up to what our customers and users are asking. Okay, so, I mean, let's go back a little bit. So February 2012 was your first launch date. So one before that, how did you get the idea and how did you build the first product? Uh, I used to be a private investigator way back. Uh, you told me a whole bunch of other stories about the things you've done last <laughs> night. You've got a very colourful past. And so, uh, you didn't uh, tell me this one. Yeah, and so I was a private investigator and uh, ended up managing a, a law firm that did investigations here in Sydney. And uh, I saw 2,500 claims where people had been injured. And um, one day it occurred to me that we needed people to be injured for us to have a job and uh, once I sort of woke up to that took a couple of years about seven uh, you know I just thought I've got to solve this like, this is ridiculous people are getting hurt every day for similar stuff and uh, and so that's that's what really was the catalyst for safety culture to be born 
Right so, I'm, right, so reversing back from February 2012, so when was this moment of epiphany around I've got to fix this and then from that point how long did it take to, to build it? Well 2004 was when I started Safety Culture, so there was no app store, there, right. there were no mobile apps uh, and I employed former government inspectors to write training documents, okay. sold them online, uh, brought the cost down across the industry by about 90%. The average cost for a safety document then was about $800. We brought it down to 80 And um, and that then uh, you know, gave me the capital to be able to try other things. We tried a training platform in 07. Uh, we tried um, a data management system in 2010. And then in 2011, I started to look at the penetration of smartphone where everyday workers who didn't sit in front of a computer, which is most of the world's workforce globally, um, now had this computer in their pocket in the form of a smartphone. And so we wanted to then try a mobile app and uh, our first app we actually released in 2011 was um, not flexible enough for people. We got feedback and then we iterated. And uh, you know, it's, it's something I've come is, to learn is that your first idea often isn't right. the best one that's going to you know, be the success, but it leads you to the next one. Right. And, uh, and so then we released iAuditor, which is now the most used safety app in the world. Okay. And so back in '04, when you, you did this, was that your full-time job? So you, you spent eight years building up the, the background to eventually becoming a proper tech yeah there was a whole bunch of stuff happened I, I employed consultants safety consultants to go and sell it out on the streets we had a call centre in Brisbane we were doing uh, cold calling companies to, to try and uh, you know offer them safety systems because we thought people would just want to work safer but it turns out that it wasn't their number one priority yeah. and so uh, you know there was a whole sort of business cycle that we went through there first where we partnered with a company to resell for us they copied all our product and became our biggest competitor uh, we had all sorts of fun stuff happen yeah. until uh, yeah, finally we, we started to get some good traction. Yeah, and, and, and you know, because this surprised me when we talked about it yesterday, but I mean, give us some context to the size of the opportunity. Yeah, so it, it costs $500 billion a year, so half a trillion dollar problem in terms of workplace accidents and illnesses. Um, and when you think of illnesses, asbestos-related stuff, things that take years to, to incubate, um, it's a massive problem. So um, Australia alone, uh, it costs around $60.6 billion a year um, to the community. Um, it, it, it's a global problem, and developing countries uh, experience higher risks than developed ones, and, um, and they need these solutions as well, but they can't afford them. So it's really important that we give people uh, low-cost solutions in this area. Yeah. Um, so, can we just touch on uh, on, on funding? Because I mean, you've been uh, pretty successful. You've got some good backers. So. How did, how did your funding journey, tell us about that? Yeah, so that started out, we had a company from the US approach us about six months after we released the app. They had... So it's still 2012. This is 2012. They bought a spin-out of Carnegie Mellon University that was looking at um, safety data metrics and, and trying to really um, build a, a big data platform. But they couldn't get any traction. And so they came and, and wanted to buy us. We went across to Pittsburgh and... Um, and, and chatted with them but at the end of the day we didn't want to sell we wanted to solve a problem and so full circle we sort of ended up talking to VCs and ended up introduced to Blackbird Ventures in 2012 and um, we got the first pair of Google Glass in Australia that was that was a little bit of um, luck on our part and the marketing the exposure that came from that helped a lot uh, we're on the project a, a news show here and um, and so all these things started to happen and uh, Blackbird Ventures uh, wanted to invest they introduced us to uh, Scott Farquhar and um, a few other really successful tech people. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where we understood, I think, um, 
the real value of investors came not for us in the form of money, but in the form of uh, you know, advice and experience and connections and introductions to help build our team. So you know, from that, we were introduced to Scott. Scott introduced us to our CFO, who was the Atlassian CFO for six years, yeah. uh, who introduced us to our VP of Engineering, who was head of Engineering at Atlassian, and so on and so, so on. That's so Anton Maskevoy that's right. is uh, VP of Engineering. He was the fourth He's a bit employee. of a rock star. Yeah, he? he is. He is. He's the fourth employee at Atlassian when they started. So it was him, Mike, Scott, and a, and a contractor, backpacker. And, um, and so uh, you know, for him to be there for that whole uh, you know, growth period to 1,000 employees, um, he's seen this movie before. Yeah. He, he understands the challenges we're facing, and I think that's really key. If, if you can get someone um, at critical points to be able to make decisions um, based on real experience rather than just theory. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who will come and offer advice when you start getting a bit of success. And uh, to have somebody who, who's just been there and done it themselves and, and been part of a multi-billion dollar tech company, um, their advice has been awesome. Yeah. And, and so your, your, your growth rate, has it remained stable? Is it accelerating? I mean, how, how is the, the traction at the moment? Yeah, so it's been accelerating uh, quite steeply um, in spite of the fact that we've been telling all our customers that our cloud backend was a, was a beta release and that they shouldn't rely on it. It still was growing, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30% a month or whatever. And um, now we've taken it out of beta. We're starting to really see, you know, much more of a hockey stick in terms of our growth going forward. And is that as simple as you take the, the label that says beta off the, the, the site and you get accelerated growth? Uh, well, there were a lot of people waiting for that to happen, so I think just the actual removing of the tag probably didn't do it, but uh, uh, people were waiting for this. You know, big companies were using it, but they wanted to be able to rely on it. Right. Mm. Uh, and uh, you've got an interesting uh, story about where you live, because most people think that you should be part of a startup hub. Uh, in fact, I think Mike's even banged on about how the startup hub should be in, uh, uh, in Sydney, but you're where? We're in Townsville. Uh, we were probably you know, the first sort of startup to break out of Townsville. There's other people now working on things, but um, uh, yeah, we, we were a regional startup and we used it to our advantage. Um, I went to the local university. We worked closely with them and told them what we're doing. They got excited. Uh, we would uh, try and attract engineers from Europe. We put on 21 engineers in 10 weeks in 2014, and um, we would offer to fly people across with their family, uh, give them free accommodation for up to three months and um, and really just sell the benefits of, of a tropical city yeah. um, that had... Were, were these migrant workers? Were these yeah. 457 visas? Yeah, yeah. we would pay for the 457 and everything and uh, people from Italy and France and Sweden wow. and, and bring them in and uh, make it really easy for them to come to this great place and, and uh, build a really cool tech stay. Right. So uh, for our listeners that haven't been to Townsville, this is a good place to come? 300 days a year, sunshine. Don't get me started. Great right. Barrier Reef. <laughs> in Glasgow, we get 300 years of, of rain. <laughs> in fact, we are in the middle of the storm of the century here, so uh, this this probably is not feeling very nice for you. Uh, it's, it's good to see some weather. We didn't get a, a, a big wet season up there, so it's nice to see see uh, nature's fury. Yeah. And actually, just want to remember, um, the Google glass thing you have so what's happened to all the uh, google glass that you have lying around uh they're still lying around uh one sits on my desk we've got um uh, so we built iAuditor onto google glass as a glass app but of course no one could buy google glass for most of the time and uh none of our customers had it so we'd peddle it around and say here's the future 
um, but it, it just wasn't practical. You know, we did some tests with it. I drove on the autobahn uh, in Germany with it, uh, and we filmed all that and documented, you know, how distracting it was or not. And um, we did a whole range of different different types of real world tests. But um, at the end of the day, it's this you know device that went on your head that you had to have a reason to wear. So right. um, the watch seems to make a lot more sense. Uh, all right, before we'll talk about the watch in a sec, but do you think Google Glass is done? For now, right. yeah, it definitely hasn't got a, a, any momentum right now. But you know, this is first iteration, so who knows? You know, oh, never so say you, never. You expect a new Glass Two to come out? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It wouldn't surprise me, but um, you know, I think the idea of uh, having a head-up display in a contact lens, yeah. something like that, is pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's really not obtrusive, but we're probably a way off that yet. Or so. a bit in- cause, yeah, because it did look vastly dorky. Yeah, yeah, it looked pretty. And, and uh, so the. the the watch. I mean, there's been watches out in market for a while now, but you know, the rumours have it that you know Apple's pre-orders are greater than the entire Android sales, and <laughs> and uh, I think it's entirety or something. I can't remember the exact details, but so are you a, a bull or a bear in the Apple Watch? Uh, so we haven't started any projects on the on the watch yet for Apple. We built iOrder for the Android watch, and um, and that was just seemed really practical. It, you know, just sat on your wrist. You could you could get the information where you needed to, and you weren't carrying some device around that you, that you weren't comfortable with. So uh, you know, Apple being Apple, they do everything so well, and um, no doubt it's going to get some traction now. Um, for us, though, um, we tend to now uh, wait for our customers to start to, to move. Um, it's a balance between how far do you invest in new tech um, before it's really established and how far do you go um, you know, in, in waiting. So that's always a balance for us. And at the moment, we're just watching at the minute. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so and, you know, quickly, what's, uh, what, what's next for, for safety culture? A uh, lot. So we've just released the new cloud backend, which means we now have the platform to build everything else on top of, and, and that's held us up quite a bit. It put us a year behind, actually. We didn't plan on rebuilding it. And so uh, public APIs is one of the big releases we have coming um, so that people can work with all this data. Essentially, because we nailed the data collection capability for safety, uh, we now have this big data project behind it where people can... Uh, um, integrate data with weather and all sorts of other data sets that, that give them insights around you know when problems are occurring and then ultimately how to avoid them. And so um, the API is a big step for us and then building out just more of our enterprise um, products for customers. So um, you know branding and uh, more controls that, enter- that enterprise customers demand, um, all that sort of stuff. A bit more of a, a end-to-end offering, analytics yeah. and things. So there's a lot happening um, and we have two other apps that we haven't announced uh, coming and um, yeah, hopefully they'll change the game again for everybody yeah. um, and uh, that'll also add to the, the data that all comes back into the safety culture platform. And, and ultimately I mean, global ambitions, I mean it's obviously your Blackbird backed company so they love global ambitions so I mean how are you uh, what, what are your plans for, for regional and global world domination? So our biggest customer base already is the US okay. um, followed by the UK um, and we have penetration in, in the European markets and, and uh, even you know, South America and, and uh, places like that. We have support native um, Portuguese, Spanish, French, Italian, a whole bunch of different languages. So um, we ultimately will end up with people in those places to help with the deployments on the ground. We've seen good success with, with the companies that we have helped 
but we've done all this with no sales or marketing to date. So that's really the next big step for us is to get better at assisting with those deployments and um, and making it really easy for people to, to roll it out. So you're going to have physical presences in these places? Yeah, I think so. Like um, we open a Kansas office next month in the US. Yeah. Um, we've had someone over there for a year already and that's gone very well. Uh, and so it seems like a logical step that we'll continue to uh, you know, assist on the ground in, in key markets in particular right. as we grow. And, and you know, we'll just keep assessing it and responding to what our customers need from us. Yeah. And then any further fundraising in the, in the wings, do you think? Uh, yeah, there will be this year. We'll do a Series A round. We've, we kind of did two smaller seed rounds of a couple of million dollars each. We'll do a larger... So just How do you define the difference between a seed and a Series A? Yeah, good question. I think it depends on where the line in the sand is that you want to draw. But yeah. um, I think for us, um, you know, it depends on the long-term plan. We have a long way to go in this journey. Yeah. It's very early for us. So, you know, I don't think... Um, you don't want to be raising a Series F or G. Yeah. You know, I haven't even heard of that yet, but someone's going to do it and so um, you know I think you want to choose your your marker points you know with with some sort of measurement and uh, in the terms of our overall stage this is very early for us so we call it Series A yeah Yeah, my my definition of it is it depends on how badass the other side's lawyers are (laughs) so the more badass they are the you know, the higher the letter. <laughs> uh, so the, um, we've got a few people milling around, so we might get interrupted soon. But so why don't we uh, we, we 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 cut it there? So thank you, Luke. Um, look, good luck with it. Uh, I'm going to look back in this interview in probably three or four years and say I spoke to Luke when he was just a little minnow in Townsville, and now uh, he's bigger than Atlassian. Um, so I hope that all goes well for you. Thanks very much. It's uh, great to be part of the show, and I'll be able to say I was one of the, the early people to be on here before it blew up and, oh. and it was global. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks man. All right, cheers. Cheers.